You're familiar with the expression, I have a pit in my stomach. For whatever reason, growing up, I always thought that was referring to something like a, like a peach pit or something, which, of course, makes no sense when you think about it in terms of the expression. So I did some research, and it turns out the expression comes from a 17th century uh, expression, meaning a pit like a ditch or a void. And I think whenever you read it that way, the expression means a whole lot more. Because the reason why I was doing this research is I wanted to examine the circumstances when I would use the expression, I have a pit in my stomach. And I came across some examples that I thought might be relevant to some of you. Let's imagine that you go into work tomorrow and you stroll past the boss's office and you see a coworker getting chummy with the boss. Well, you and your coworker actually are in competition for a big promotion that you want really badly. And there he is chatting it up with the boss. Suddenly you get a pit in your stomach, right? Or let's say you're flipping through Facebook or Instagram and you see an acquaintance of yours who's celebrating the latest scholarship that their child got to a big school. And while you're trying really hard to rejoice with your friend and their good fortune, a little thought pops into your head is, maybe I should have pushed my child to study a little bit more. The pit returns. Or let's say you get invited to a friend's party that they want to have at their brand new house. And as you pull up into the driveway, you honestly cannot believe how big the house is. And you look over at your spouse and wonder if they might be secretly wishing that they had ended up with someone quite as successful as your friends. There's that pit again. What are those sensations, right? What are those feelings? They're feelings of inadequacy. They're feelings of a, of a creeping insecurity that's born of fear that whoever I am is not enough. What I've done is not enough. I'm failing at life, we think. And that realization causes anxiety that is oftentimes so palpable that it produces this fluttering in our stomachs. We sometimes call those butterflies. But I kind of, I've come to enjoy the word pit a little bit more because that's what it feels like. It feels like in those moments that we've fallen into a void that has emptiness in the center of it. And it makes me anxious. I, I think there's actually a case to be made that much of the business of our days as Oxfordians is spent managing those feelings of feeling insecure and trying to keep them at bay. And they keep us miserable oftentimes, which we don't really recognize until we start to look at our bad habits, do we? I, I don't think I'm making any headlines when I say that probably in Oxford we drink too much. No, we're not one of those churches that believes that alcohol is inherently evil, of course. But for some of us, we just didn't pay that much attention to a really bad habit that started when we were students here. And over time, it really became a legitimate problem. I used to contend with students that the unique property that alcohol plays in your life is to sort of lower your inhibitions, which I think suggests that if for whatever reason I can't be in a social setting without something to drink, doesn't that suggest that the rest of the time when I'm not drinking, I am severely inhibited? The word we should be using there is insecurity because that's how you become an alcoholic. The drinks make life manageable. That is, they're trying to fill up the pit long enough until you're finally saying things like, man, I need a drink. And by the way, we probably should never drink when we think we should need a drink, right? But my point this morning is that our insecurities are driving so much of our waking life. The question is, though, how can we navigate those insecurities and live a life of joy and confidence? 
Here in Romans 8, 37 through 39, you get this glimpse of what really has to be some of the most secure, convinced poise that the Apostle Paul has ever disclosed from his inner world. In other words, Paul is not preaching, as we've been saying, a commonplace Christianity. Rather, he is filling up that pit in his stomach with the great thought of God's word in his life. In other words, he's leading his readers into the convinced life, the one that we need to look at closely if we're ever going to get close to having the life that he had. Three things that Paul fills his life up with. Number one, he fills it up with God's sovereignty. Number two, with God's efficiency. And then finally, with God's adequacy. Let's look at that first one, God's sovereignty. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Uh, it's got to be one of the most quoted verses in the Bible for people that are hurting, right? And you can see why. Paul is saying that simply, that simply and straightforward, for those people who love God and are called by him, everything in your life, even, dare we say especially, the bad things, are going to end up being good things. Your bad, if you're a Christian, will always turn to good, Paul is saying. Look, you've got to unpack this in about three different ways. The first thing you've got to notice is the qualifier, by the way. you just got to own this. Because the blessing of bad things turning to good is actually restricted to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We've got to be real careful not to turn this verse into the Bible's equivalent of a, I don't know, a Peter Pan happy thought or some sort of power of positive thinking with Christian skin on it. Paul is saying no one who has not been united with Christ should have any confidence that their futures are going to end happily. And I realize that's kind of a stark way to put that. But if it's true, it's much better to face that fact head on from the outset, wouldn't you say? My suggestion for someone who's wrestling with that is to go back to Romans 1 through 3, get secure there before you start to draw any rest out of chapter 8. Second thought is, we've got to be careful not to misread what Paul is saying. He's not saying, well, Christians just have good things happen to them over and over and over because all things work together for good. It's actually an entire strain of American Christianity that teaches this very thing. Come to Jesus and get a better life is the promise. But that's not what Paul was talking about here. In verse 29 he says, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined, but you'll find as you read on that that foreknowledge and that predestination has a reason behind him, an end, a telos, if you will. Namely, it says, to be conformed to the image of his Son. So that's not a promise that God fixes our circumstances in life to our desire. The promise is that God is going to finish what he started. In other words, God is not going to give up on his people until he has them happy and holy and with him. The promise is for a holy life, not an easy life. And we don't need to associate godliness with ease. As a matter of fact, the Bible often promises quite the opposite. But the third thing is, and this is what the main part of this point is, don't miss the joy of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God in your life. Paul is filling up this pit in his life by saying, it is God's practice to take everything in your life, including your pain and your heartache and your loneliness and your utter confusion and your deepest regrets. And it's not that he's going to erase them, you know, give you some kind of amnesia about them. He's not going to deny them 
act like, you know, that never happened. But nor is he also going to make you pay for them. How many people do you know who interpret the bad things that happen in them, their lives? It's like, well, I guess God's getting me for that one. I wonder what I did to deserve this. That's not how God deals with our suffering. God deals with our suffering in much the same way that he did with his son's death on the cross. I used to love to ask students the question. Here's a question. Was Jesus dying on the cross? Was that the worst thing that ever happened in human history? Or was it the best thing that happened in human history? I mean, initially speaking, if you were his disciples, I mean, it had to look like a total catastrophe. I mean, here's a man who is literally changing the face of Palestine through the word of his power. Suddenly, though, he's captured and executed. I mean, if you were actually convinced that this was the Son of God, I mean, you would have been in the deepest of despair. But, of course, in the apostles, as the months went on, they began to realize that that very same cross, the lowest moment of their religious experience, ended up being the essence of the goodness of God to them and the greatest thing that could ever happen. And here's what I want you to hear. That is utterly unique to Christianity. No other world religion gets close to this. There are religions in the world, on the one hand, who look at you and make you feel guilty for your suffering. Well, I don't know. What, do you, what did you do wrong? Are you living the way you're supposed to live? There are other religions that will look at your suffering and say, well, that suffering's not real. That's an illusion. Eastern religions sort of find their way into that particular uh, emphasis. But it's only Christianity that comes along and says, yes, that was hard. That was awful. And you are completely justified to be crushed by it. But because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, that worst thing in your life, you can actually have confidence that he's going to do the same thing with that and turn it into the best thing. What, meanwhile, the event being exactly the same. This is what it reminded me of. It reminded me of that story in Genesis 50, at the end of the story, where Joseph is there with his brothers. And his brothers are panicked. They all have a pit in their stomach. You want to know why? Because they have believed that all this time their little brother, who they sold into slavery, was only being nice to them because their father was still alive. But their father's now dead. And so they're like, well, now he's going to kill us after it's all over. But here's the deal. Joseph is wrong. They're wrong about what Joseph's thinking is because Joseph's confidence is not in his circumstances but in God's promise. And so he utters this beautiful verse in Genesis 50, uh, verse 20, when he says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are this day. Did you hear that? You intended something. You had an intention for an action that was evil. But God superintended good from the exact same act. And I realize for some of you that sounds harsh because you're saying, I cannot imagine how God could possibly bring something good out of what I'm going through right now in the situation I'm in. But you can at least take some comfort in knowing that God is the kind of God who takes those very circumstances, and this is what will blow your mind, even the circumstances that had your evil intention behind them, and he takes those things and he fashions them for good so that he can bring about opportunities for all of his holy purposes for you. Whew. That's confidence. Like I'm old enough to say that there are eras in my, my life that I look back and would not relive for all the tea in China. 
But I've also been a distance enough from him to look back and be like, but you know what? I don't think I'd trade him either because of how much God's taught me through it. That's different. And what happens is when we start to take that in, it begins to erode your insecurity from the inside because we fill ourselves up with God's sovereign control over my life. Secondly, though, we not only see God's sovereignty, but we see God's efficiency. What do I mean by that? Well, the second thing Paul encourages us with is by saying, not only is God going to take your bad and turn it to good, that good can never be taken away from you. Look at verse 29 and 30. What you get there is the first recorded, what we refer to as the order of salvation. There are a couple other places in the Bible, but Paul is simply saying, here's where your salvation began, here's where your salvation is headed, and here are all the logical steps in between. And he's saying, I think, at least two really astounding things because of these, this order of salvation. The first one is this. Paul says, your salvation was thought about long before you ever thought about it. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. That's a very interesting word, foreknew. There's a lot of people who have read that word and made the mistake of thinking that to foreknow something just means that God had some level of intellectual awareness of something that was coming in the future. That is, God was looking down throughout the corridors of time and he saw there that you were believing in him. The problem is that really doesn't do justice to the word foreknew because the word's a whole lot stronger than that. Look, in the Bible, when it says to know someone, it's not just an intellectual awareness. It is actually a deep, personal, very intimate kind of knowing. So much so, just by way of example, oftentimes you'll see the word know in the Bible as, as a synonym for people having sex. Go back to Genesis 4.1 where it says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, right? Paul uses the exact same word here. In other words, Paul is not saying God was simply aware of you before you were born. He says he set his love on you. He determined to love you even before you or anything else was even created, which is why he can use that word predestined. It's interesting. That's actually a fairly literal translation of that Greek word that says God set a destination for us beforehand that we should be conformed to his likeness. Now, I know I'm not naive. This is where people get really bent out of shape. But I feel like in so doing, we oftentimes miss the beauty here. Because the beauty is simply this. I think that the more that you look inside your own heart, you're going to find a desire that wishes someone would love you for no other reason than the fact that they chose to love you. In other words, in our humanity, everyone longs for a love that is its own rationale. I don't want someone to love me because I did something for me. Because that means if it was, that it was earned. And if that love was earned, you know what that means? It means I can unearn it. And I think that's where the matters of insecurity lie when it comes to love. A number of years ago, I was talking to a campus minister friend of mine who had an adopted uh, 10-year-old child who found themselves very upset one particular day because, you know, well, I'm not like your real children, mommy and daddy. My campus minister said something I thought was fairly clever. He said, well, look, you know, your brother and sister that we have, um, you know, we, when we had them, we had to accept whatever we got. But you, we chose out of everybody else. He said, suddenly the questions kind of dissolved and went away. 
Why? Because in that moment, the child grasped in the simplest of way that I was loved simply because I was loved. And he knew in that moment, here's the word, that he was secure. Because his place in the family, his standing in the family, was not rooted in his performance, but rather in his parents' choice. That's where the encouragement comes from. Look, the child was upset, right? He struggled with where he was. He struggled with what, was no, what, he, what he knew on the inside. But at the heart of what his family was trying to say is, Dis, dislodge your confidence from your work. Put it in us. That is what the doctrine of election means. And I realize that's not going to satisfy some of your philosophical objections to those who don't like this teaching from the Bible. I can say this, that even when you reject the teaching, the desire to be loved in that way, with a love that is its own rationale, that's not going away, regardless of what happens. That's the first thing. Second thing, very briefly, is this that comes from this, uh, this second point about efficiency, is in verse 30. Because Paul says, look, those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, get the language here. Justification is that thing that was done at the outset of one's salvation. It begins there. Glorification is that thing that's done in eternity future when God has all of his people up in heaven and gives us new bodies and a new creation and everything else. That's the glorification. <laughs> but did you notice something weird about how that read? You would think it would say, those whom he justified, he will eventually glorify, right? But the deal is, verse 30, that verb is in the past tense. And commentators have been noticing that grammar for years. Your future, Paul says, is so certain that we can talk about it as if it's already happened. This is the reason why I named this point God's efficiency. God has shown efficiency in saving his people. He didn't and he won't leave anything undone. Your future is certain in Christ. I think about this a lot. I look back in my youth, especially my dating times, and I realize of all of the idiotic decisions that I made during that epoch of my life, I often have found myself saying, you know, if I would have known that Ginger, the wonderful Ginger, was at the end of my search or at the end of my dating experience, I feel like I would have acted a little differently. But you can never know that, can you? You never know that there's someone lovely in your future that's going to happen. But what Paul is saying is, God doesn't treat us that way. God is going to say, I'm going to show you exactly what you're in for. So that by showing you the glory of your future, it begins to work into you and neutralize the insecurity that we feel about all of the circumstances that swirl around us. What's happening? Where am I going? What am I doing? Why did that happen? God looks and implants this efficiency inside of his uh, salvation. So God's sovereignty, God's efficiency. Lastly, Paul revels in God's adequacy. Man, look, in verses 31 to 35, if you can't tell, Paul is, Paul is verbally gushing. And what he does, he starts to lay out five reasons, at least five reasons, that we can feel a sense of security in our relationship with God. Or why God is fully adequate to provide for the worst of our insecurities. Look, it's a rapid fire wash of encouragement that he's drawing from each of which I'm sure could be a sermon on their own. But it all adds up to this. It says that for the believer, everything that you're experiencing now is going to get better 
and better and better. Look, just let some of this wash over you. First thing in verse 31, Paul goes to God's power. For if God is for us, who could be against us? I think that we white Protestants never focus on God's power enough, and that's probably because we've not done the hard work to figure out exactly what power means for a Christian. Hold that thought. We may return to that in the fall. But suffice to say, if you have God on your side, Paul is saying, you always have the bigger stick. Speak softly and carry a big stick, right? That was uh, our translation of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 10, 16, where we're supposed to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We have the power of God behind us. It changes the way we look at power in general. But secondly, though, Paul really focuses on God's generosity. Man, I love verse 32. Look at it again. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I <laughs> love this. Imagine an illustration. Let's say, for instance, that you have a relative who adores you. They adore you so much that they decide that they are going to purchase for you a condo on the square. I mean, premium real estate for you, right? And so you're there with your, with your relative at the closing, and the realtor's there with you, walking you through the process, as wonderful realtors do. And at one point, the realtor says, you know, I think this is such a wonderful gift. Would you allow me to maybe put a nice wreath with a flower, maybe a ribbon on it, to kind of decorate up the gift? And your relative looks at the realtor and says, okay, uh, how much is that going to cost? The realtor's like, well, I don't know, five, ten bucks or something like that, nothing big. What would you say if that realtor looks at you and is kind of like, ten dollars? That's outrageous. I will not pay it. You would think to yourself, but but you already bought a condo on the square. Why are you fussing over that? (laughs) Look, that is exactly how Paul wants you to reason in your heart. What is it that seeps into our hearts and has convinced us that God has suddenly become withholding? That, That somehow God is exasperated with my prayers? That he's somehow exhausted from helping me time and time again. Because Paul is saying, if he's already done the the, the unbelievable thing of giving his son, how would he not with how would he withhold anything that you need after doing that? It's powerful logic, is it not? Thirdly, Paul looks at God's pardon in verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against any elect? Who I love this. Because how many times in the Christian life? Is it marked by feeling utterly chargeable? You know what I'm talking about? You've got the idea of grace somewhere in your thinking, but all of a sudden new evidence arises. I didn't know I was capable of that. And with that new evidence, we suddenly feel like maybe I'm on the outs now. Maybe the, maybe the judgment's going to be overturned. But of course, this is the beauty. Because in God's eyes, there's no such thing as new evidence. Because God knows all things and he justified us. That justification was including sins past, sins present, and sins future. Because justification means that God is going to look at uh, at his son's life record in replacement of our life record, which includes our future. Which therefore suddenly means that all of those things, though they are unknown to me, the things that are coming in my future, they are not unknown to him. And he's paid it all. No wonder that in verse 34, Paul goes fourthly to Christ's work. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What a great summary of the gospel. 
Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. He intercedes for his people on behalf. You know, there's actually some traditions, some churches, right before we take the Lord's Supper, they recite that together. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ shall come again. Maybe we should think about that. Fifthly and finally, Paul finishes with Christ's love. He says in verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How can you be more a conqueror, by the way? That doesn't make sense. And I love that because I have no idea what Paul's talking about, except that he's saying, whatever it is, it's going to be great because it's rooted in his love for us. Hey, look, I think it's worth us. Can we take a moment to just think about the arc of one's life? Here I am in my mid-50s, and people keep calling me middle-aged, and I seriously don't think they mean that I'm in the middle of my life, but whatever. But the season people have been telling me just kind of gets you thinking about the trajectory of my life. Where am I headed? How am I going to finish my earthly portion in this life? Because if I can answer that question with confidence, it changes that pit in my stomach, doesn't it? And if I have confidence now, it changes the way I look at everything. But here's the deal. If what Paul is saying is true, it means that no matter what path my life is taking, it's always going to get better. It's always going to get better. Where is all this heading? I realize this, that there's something unusual for our graduating seniors here this morning. This may be our last time to get together in the way in which we are. And I simply want you to know that if there was any deposit that Christ Presbyterian Church wanted to make in your life, in the little small window of time that you've allowed us to have here at this church, it is that somewhere in the midst of it, you would have come through with the Apostle Paul's words when he says, For I am sure, I am certain that neither life nor death nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or heights or depths or anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's it. That was the one thing we wanted you to get. And no matter where it leads you, no matter how many question marks there are in your future, now, maybe that you're at the beginning, you're at the beginning of a journey. I don't know where the Lord's taking me. Maybe you're at the very end and you're looking back over life, maybe with some regrets. It doesn't matter. Paul wraps it all up in this beautiful thought. And it reminded me, and Kurt and I were talking about this just a couple weeks ago, of the last line in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, where he describes heaven this way. He says, all of the children's adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one has ever read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What if that was our future? Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you take us by the hand and lead us to that so that we might worship and take joy, that when we come to this table, it will not simply be a mere, a, 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 an action of habit, but a place where we commune with you because you've invited us here. Would you do that? Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.